Hello and welcome to Going Viral. I am David Lim. It is Wednesday, the 3rd of February. Dr. Gary Groman gives an update on the Novavax vaccine, comments on how to interpret the impact of variants on the efficacy of current vaccines, looks at Australia's vaccine strategy in light of Germany and Italy's reluctance to immunize their citizens over the age of 65 with the AstraZeneca Oxford vaccine, and clarifies what the full approval given to the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine actually means. Before we start, I'd like to encourage you to register for the next webcast, where you can always catch a high-quality lineup of speakers and topics that HealthEd has put together for you. HealthEd webcasts are carefully created to provide high-quality video and audio so that you have the best possible learning experience. It's free, you get CPD points, and it's all delivered directly to the digital device of your choice, wherever you choose to be. Register now at healthed.com.au. You can listen to these podcasts on the HealthEd website or you can download the HealthEd app and access many other learning resources as well. Dr. Groman, can you tell us about yourself? Thank you, David, and hello to everybody. Um, yes, I'm a consultant virologist and I've recently worked for the World Health Organization for four years uh, and, and also on various committees for about 20 years for the WHO. Uh, while I was working for the TGA, I worked for the regulator here in Australia for some 17 years. And prior to that, I had an academic and research career. Gary, since we last spoke, much has happened uh, in the COVID-19 scene. Now, I believe that uh, Novavax has had some uh, reports out and that this is reports are interesting because it shows that some of the new variants, the South African and Brazilian variants, may actually have an effect on its efficacy. Could you tell us more? Yes. Uh, now, the Novavax, um, they've got a very nice press release on their website, and it shows very good efficacy in around about 90-something percent, uh, or 89 to 90%, depending how you view the data. But mm -hmm. it is efficacy and not effectiveness. Mm -hmm. And um, when they've looked at some of the variant strains, the efficacy has been a little less. But this is not surprising. I think the important thing is to look at secondary endpoints of hospitalizations and deaths. And it has basically uh, avoided hospitalizations and deaths completely with the use of this vaccine against the variant strains. Uh, and people get very caught up with, oh, 93 is better than 89 or 89 is better than 60. But when it comes to vaccines, it isn't like that. It's the endpoints of severe disease and death, hospitalizations and so on, uh, that you need to look at. And all these vaccines, in fact, not just the Novavax, are very, very good at um, shepherding us against uh, hospitalizations and severe disease and death. And from that point of view, I think we can take great confidence in all these vaccines, not mm -hmm. only the Novavax um, or the Pfizer or the Moderna, whichever one you're looking at. Uh, they all uh, protect against those important secondary endpoints, but they don't necessarily have a very high efficacy or effectiveness. It won't be 100% in terms of stopping someone from getting a mild infection, uh, but they will be extremely unlikely to get severe disease and end up in hospital. 
there any, any chance that we will know some primary endpoints of uh, infection and transmission in time to come? Look, I think so. I think all that work is being done and that, and that will come. The other thing I'll mention about the variants is that when you look at the data, the confidence uh, limits overlap. So um, that's important to understand that there's quite a range there. This is biology, and this is just so typical uh, of biology, uh, looking at biological organisms in different countries, humans mm -hmm. in this case, and uh, we see extraordinary variation. But I think everybody can be pretty confident in the vaccines to date, which I think is absolutely fantastic news. Uh, that they will have quite an effect on uh, severity of disease. Yeah. I guess as doctors, uh, you know, f uh, at least for myself, um, these primary endpoints, of course, is what I'm really looking out for because that's what you want uh, to prevent the infection in the first place and to stop transmission because I suspect that is what we need to open our borders and really to have life lived normally. Am I reading this wrong? No, you're reading it absolutely right, and that would be the ideal. But 90% or so is nothing to be sneezed at. That's a fantastic result. Most of our vaccines are somewhere between 60 and 99% effective. We'll never get 100%. Uh, but influenza, for example, is probably 50 to 60 or maybe 70% effective in a good year, depending on the strain. Mm -hmm. And other vaccines, 80, 90, 99% for something like rubella. Uh, they can be very, very effective uh, in the community. And when we get in around about 90% efficacy, which really we have for the vast majority of strains, uh, then we will begin to hold transmission and it will uh, begin to disappear. The other area, which we've talked about before many times, is all the hygiene, social distancing and so on, mm. all those restrictions in combination with vaccination will certainly eliminate a virus from a community, but just look at Australia. We haven't got vaccines and we've essentially eliminated the virus. Mm -hmm. We have pockets here and there. We have a few mistakes with quarantine and that seems to be the only source of uh, infection in the community. We've got very little person-to-person -person spread. When it does arise, uh, it gets jumped on quickly. We have been incredibly successful in this country as has New Zealand, Taiwan, Singapore, Vietnam, uh, some other countries. Uh, simply through adhering to very strict rules when it comes uh, to hygiene and social distancing uh, practices and awareness. And that's just been an outstanding result. So combine that wonderful result together yeah. with a decent vaccine, uh, then this virus, um, uh, particularly if we keep up international quarantine um, for travellers, then uh, this virus will have no chance of spreading in Australia. Brings to mind um, a question uh, if the quarantine is so far the only source of outbreaks in Australia, we seem to be putting a lot of emphasis on the vaccines when we actually have in the last few days, no hospitalizations. I mean, no one in intensive care, no one being ventilated. And I think less than 10 people in hospitals and no community spread. Should we not? really seriously spend a lot more time on the quarantine area uh, rather than just blanket immunise everyone right now when our figures are so low. It's always a multi-pronged approach in my view, David. Um, mm -hmm. The quarantine side of it has to be tightened up. We've had so many mistakes, whether it's cruise ships or the mm -hmm. Melbourne incidents or, or now 
mm-hmm. the most recent incidents uh, in a few places now. And um, it just shows you what happens when we take the eye off the ball. Uh, complacency is our biggest enemy here. Mm-hmm. Um, people on the front line, for example, those supervising quarantine, uh, need to be really well educated and made aware of how this virus can so easily transmit and affect and how they can easily transmit it and affect it uh, mm-hmm. as, as well and affect others, whether that's virus symptomatic or asymptomatic root or virus surface. It, it's so important mm-hmm. that those people get the proper training and are absolutely strict. Uh, you know, it needs a certain amount of discipline, I'm afraid, uh, to be able to implement this, and it has to be absolute for that 14-day or so period. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we have the tests. They're very good now, uh, and we can test at day one, day 10, day 14, which is fantastic. We can still follow people up afterwards. We have IT in place in the form of phones and mm. COVID apps and all this kind of thing, which is great. So go to a restaurant and sign in. Uh, which is wonderful. That means everybody can be traced and tracked if there is an outbreak and therefore protected and tested uh, and isolated home temporarily. We have lots of things in place as, you know, on on the ground, the bottom-up approach, as I Mm. call it. Mm. Uh, And it's so important to have that very, very tight. And when you do have it very, very tight, you get no outbreaks. And Mm. that's why we've been so successful. We must keep it up, but make sure complacency doesn't come in which I think is all that has happened here, uh, and in, ensure that those people that are looking after those in quarantine, which is now basically the only source mm-hmm. of the virus coming in, it only comes in through people. So uh, mm. it's the only source. We don't have an animal vector as far as we know or an insect vector or anything like this. It's a human uh, transmission, human to human, highly efficient. Therefore, anybody coming in from overseas, if they keep that very strong line, of quarantine and the quarantine supervisors keep a very strong line. There should be no issues uh, in bringing people in from overseas and then allowing them into the community. The only other issue we're thinking about is, of course, asymptomatic infection. But the tests as they now stand should be able to determine if somebody is carrying an asymptomatic infection. So mm-hmm. having a test at day 14 or even if you're released after day 14, say at day 20, to ensure um, that you're not excreting virus mm-hmm. uh, uh, could be an important thing to do, but that's up to the authorities to think about. That's very clear. Thank you, Gary. Now, um, our rollout strategy is being made fairly clear. Uh, we've got phase 1A, uh, frontline workers, all given their Pfizer-BioNTech jab, and the phase 1B, which is to 6.1 million Australians, age over 70 healthcare workers, adults at high risks, given the AstraZeneca uh, vaccine. Now, Gary, uh, I'm just going to put it in context that both Germany and Italy have uh, basically stated that they have issues with giving the AstraZeneca vaccine in people over the age of 65. And yet we are going it for everyone over the age of 70. Are we doing our strategy based on availability of vaccines or on evidence? Well, that's a very good question. I I think we do it. Well, I'm quite sure we're doing it on evidence. The uh, reason that Germany and Italy and uh, scientists generally around the world are a little nervous about those over 65 um, is that there are very few large studies that have been done in the over 65s 
who ensure safety and, of course, no long-term studies for any of these vaccines, by the way, uh, in terms of safety. So no long-term studies at all yet. We'll get that data in due course. Mm-hmm. And I think very sensibly the TGA, I think they were very smart in giving a full registration, but only for two years. So there is a condition, and the conditions include collecting safety data, both locally and from overseas, to give the TGA and its committees assurance uh, that... Uh, these vaccines are in fact safe and there are no long-term sequelae. And that's uh-huh. that's really, really important. So I think it was a very smart move by the TGA. They wanted to not, well, they didn't want to give it an emergency registration. We have no uh-huh. emergency. So uh-huh. it made it a bit difficult. There's also nothing in the legislation that allows for a vaccine uh, to be given as emergency use that would be extremely unusual and not happened before as far as I know. Uh, but nevertheless, I mean, other drugs certainly have been given emergency use, but not vaccines because they're going to healthy people. Now, there is no emergency in Australia anyway. So it's been given full approval, but only for two years and on serious strict conditions. So that's a very smart thing to do as data is getting collected from the rollout here and from the rollout that's currently happening overseas. Over, what, 75,000 or so people have now been given uh, mRNA vaccines, at least in the UK, um, more in Europe and the US, as it begins to roll out and this ends up with being millions of people, short and medium term safety data will come through that will be clear uh, mm-hmm. in the field as phase four. Uh, that, uh, and also importantly, effectiveness data will come in and you'll find the effectiveness will be less than the efficacy because mm-hmm. these are now uncontrolled groups. So we'll await that data. But even if it drops down to 80% effectiveness, it will still be incredibly useful uh, as the secondary endpoints of severe disease, hospitalisation and so on will be ameliorated for sure. Mm. So that's still expected to happen. Uh, But we have no long-term safety data. The difficulty Italy and Germany and others are having with the AstraZeneca vaccine in the over-65s is that there are very small numbers in their studies. Now, they're redoing those studies and, and... I think in general, you know, people would expect this vaccine to be fine uh, for the over 65. I've got, I, I can't see any reason why it shouldn't be, uh, but there isn't a data there uh, to say that it will be. And this is the difficulty Germany and Italy had. So they've broken away from the EMA in that regard. So the EMA as a European regulatory authority is happy with the AstraZeneca as is the MHRA in the UK as is uh, the FDA in the US. Mm-hmm. So three of the best uh, regulatory authorities in the world are quite happy with this vaccine being rolled out um, uh, in the older demographic. So um, I don't expect there would be any issues. I don't think any medical scientists are expecting any major issues. But again, the data set is small, and that's why they're not too happy about that vaccine being rolled out at this time. And, and Gary, I suspect that the um, deaths in patients over 85 in Norway from Pfizer has not been repeated or reported in any other country. Um, yeah, look, it's not been seen again. And um, I, I think it, people are now sort of concluding that it was more of a temporal association in the sense that these were very frail and elderly patients and probably should not have been vaccinated in the first place. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, the deaths are recorded and they appear to be accurate and they appear to be associated. Uh, I don't know if they're causal, though. Uh, and that's, you know, that's something that people will debate.
Mm. Um, but I think it sends out the message very clearly um, that GPs and health providers need to know their patient, um, understand whether they should get a vaccination or not, and what the consequences might be, particularly for the frail and elderly. And we mentioned before, for those that have got a history of anaphylactic reaction with mRNA vaccines, um, there's polyethylene glycol in the manufacturing process, and that appears uh, to be a factor when it comes to anaphylactic reaction. So anybody with a history of anaphylactic reaction, they can certainly get the vaccine, but they would need to be watched very carefully and they would need to be in a medical situation where help can be provided uh, if there's an issue. Mm -hmm. uh, so, uh, and again, GPs, GPs and others will play a big role here because they know their patients incredibly well. Uh, and they can explain what the risks might be, or they may, they may choose to give them a different vaccine, such as the AstraZeneca or Novavax when they come on board after approval in, in, in Australia. Uh, so we need to await approval for both those vaccines. Uh, they've been um, uh, they're, they're certainly on the way and have been accepted by the TGA for review. So uh, we'll get data and results on that in due course. Gary, what are the timelines for other vaccines becoming available? And what other vaccines will begin to report their results in the coming months and weeks, or weeks and months? Well, Johnson & Johnson is the latest one to come out with a statement and their, and their results. And their efficacy data is a little bit less than uh, some of the others reported. But again, I wouldn't get caught up with numbers. Uh, this is not really the important thing. If it's showing you know, 60% effectiveness or 70% uh, efficacy, I mean, not effectiveness, then uh, that's not a bad thing. Uh, I think we need to look at secondary endpoints and take a broader view. So let's not get caught up with the numbers as such. And it's mm. easy to do because 95 sounds a lot better than 60. Mm. Uh, but that's really not what we're talking about. We know these vaccines will work and give protection and particularly to the secondary endpoints. Mm. So the Johnson & Johnson vaccine... Um, looks to be very successful. Uh, so now there are five vaccines available around the world. Uh, to the Western world is, of course, I shouldn't uh, forget, we shouldn't forget there's the Sputnik vaccine in Russia, which has been rolled out to hundreds of thousands, if not more people. We don't know the numbers or details or the safety data yet. Uh, it's a similar vaccine to the Johnson & Johnson and AstraZeneca. Um, there's also several vaccines in China that have been rolled out probably to millions of people. But again, there's no reporting of data on efficacy or safety from China. And we'll have to await that. But if that is successful, then uh, they will probably be rolled out in Southeast Asia as well, depending on the regulatory authorities there. But again, there's no confidence in those vaccines without publications and analysis of, of their data, and we don't know how well they've done their studies and reporting. So mm. you just have to leave them out of the equation. But just to mention they do exist and they mm -hmm. have been rolled out to hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people. But if we look at the five vaccines that are probably coming our way, Pfizer, Moderna, AstraZeneca, Novavax, and now Johnson & Johnson, we expect all these to be available certainly by the end of the year, I imagine, they may not come to Australia first, but some, of course, can be made in Australia and people will be aware that CSL has cell culture capacity and they will be able to make uh, some of these vaccines through their cell culture facility under licence, of course. And uh, the fact that we have the facility is fantastic. It mm. means we don't need to 
rely so much on production overseas. Mm-hmm. But production does take time. It's not, it's not like turning on a tap and water comes out. It takes time. There's a lot of quality control procedures um, that have to be there. There's a lot release or batch release done by the TGA as well to ensure the, the quality of the product. And then there's, uh, there, there has to be careful rollout. There's cold chain and all these things that mm-hmm. people may not think involve time, but involves a lot of time. And as GPs, <laughs> you'll know that, uh, uh, yes, you get a box of vaccine, but somebody's still got to unpack it and draw it up from a multi-dose file and put it in the fridge and organize people to come in and, uh, and then give the vaccine and then watch people for 15 to 30 minutes and explain things. It all takes tremendous amount of time from beginning right through to rollout and then injection. Uh, it's, quite, it's quite significant. So uh, there's, there's a lot going on as these things will roll out. Uh, and eventually I would predict that by the end of the year, we'll probably have five vaccines at our disposal and we'll see how they all go. And data will be collected. And probably this time next year, if we have a chat, we'll have uh, data to speak of uh, for the medium to reasonably long-term. One year is pretty good. Mm-hmm. And we'll also have quite a lot of data points in that there should be millions of people vaccinated by then and we can see what the medium to long-term safety outcomes are. Of course, after two years, uh, we'll know a lot more about Mm. any long-term safety issues. I might add there's this rule of three uh, in in, um, uh, vaccinology and regulatory world where if you um, inoculate 30,000 people and you find one event or two events, then that basically tells you it's a one in 3,000 chance of that happening. Mm-hmm. But if you knock like 300,000 and you only find one event, and then tells you it's about one in 100,000 chance of it happening. Um, if it's a very, se- this is assuming it's a serious event. So once you get into the millions, then you can really begin to make a decent risk assessment of what mm-hmm. that number might be. And then the community will accept a very low risk, say one in 10 million or one in 5 million, whatever it might be. In terms of risk, we do accept various risks. As we know, we drive cars and there is a risk. We drive planes. It's a very low risk. Fly planes, I mean, we uh, go to restaurants. It's considered to be a one in 10,000 risk to get food poisoning. We seem to accept that. For drinking water, I think we prefer it to be one in 100,000 in this country. And, And so risk assessment uh, is important, not only because they're real numbers, but it also plays on people's minds. People are willing to take certain risks, but not others. And the risks here for these vaccines from safety is actually still a little bit unknown. We know about short-term risks. We've seen a few issues with anaphylaxis um, and the issues of immunising older people that are frail. Uh, we haven't seen anything else yet that's major. We did see in the phase three clinical trials some myositis and transverse myelitis. That needs to be kept an eye on. Uh, We need to keep an eye on autoimmune diseases in particular uh, for the long term and see if anything arises there. And then there's the usual other things like William-Barre syndrome and so on, uh, other neurological issues that people will look for. Remember that this virus is uh, systemic, gives systemic infections. It affects both the respiratory and enteric tract to start with, but then can cause systemic infection uh, including neurological sequelae. So, and that might manifest as chronic fatigue, tiredness, all sorts of things for some period of time. So we do need to keep an eye on patients 
from that point of view, but also on vaccinees. We need to make sure that all those things are looked at and mm. recorded if, if they arise. And it is an if at this point. You know, I've heard all that very clearly, Gary. And the other thing we have to balance it against is around the world, at least, number of people dying, uh, the significant long-term COVID health issues, uh, sparing our healthcare workers in various countries, and also opening up trade, economy, borders. So there's a lot to weigh against the potential side effects, if you like, uh, versus yes, yeah. what you're going to gain out of it. So it's it's not a simple equation at all, is it? That's a very complex equation, but I, I, I think um, good economics and so on uh, depends on good health. And uh, so it is important to get on top of this problem, which we have in Australia, for sure. We're very much on top of it. We're so on top of it that it is just unbelievable. Um, and uh, it's fantastic that we are. And we need to keep up that impetus and enthusiasm to stay on top of it. Uh, and as you mentioned before, it's the quarantine and border control, uh, international border control, that's really, really important. I'm not, I don't think many of us are too convinced that internal border controls are that important. But, uh, mm-hmm. you know, unless there are major outbreaks uh, of hundreds or something, uh, but certainly international border control is critical and we have to maintain that until vaccines are rolled out. But even then, uh, we need to make sure uh, that there's some kind of follow-up of people that come in, even if they're vaccinated. I think that's really, really important. Now, we do this normally and whenever we've travelled overseas, I'm sure when all of us have come back in, we get a little sheet and it says if you're, you know, if you're, uh, suffering from an infectious disease or have these symptoms, whatever it might be in the last week, depending where you've traveled, uh, then please let the uh, people know on the ground. And you get that at every airport when you travel. And certainly you do in Australia. And that's a really important safety barrier because if you are exhibiting symptoms of some sort, whether it's gastrointestinal or respiratory, whatever it might be, or you're just feeling unwell, encouraging people to report that uh, to medical staff on the ground is very, very important. And they can make an assessment and, um, and take it from there. But that kind of barrier is, in fact, already in place. And we need to now double down uh, with COVID and, and make sure it really doesn't get into the country. Gary, once again, I thank you for this update. Uh, I, of course, uh, would love to give, get in touch with you again sometime in the near future when new things arise. But thank you for today's update. Thank you, David. And um, I hope to talk to you again soon. I look forward to that. Thank you so much. Have a good day, Gary. Thank you. Goodbye. Just a quick reminder as we wrap up to encourage you to register for the next webcast, where you can always catch a high-quality lineup of speakers and topics that HealthEd has put together for you. HealthEd webcasts are carefully created to provide high quality video and audio so that you have the best possible learning experience. It's free, you get CPD points, and it's all delivered directly to the digital device of your choice, wherever you choose to be. Register now at healthad.com.au.